Welcome to Sci Section. Today's interview is with Dr. Dan Weary from UBC. Thank you for joining us today. Could you introduce yourself and what you do? Yeah, hi, and thanks very much for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, I'm, um, I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia. Um, my uh, background is in animal behavior and uh, for about the past 25 years or so now, I've been applying studies of behavior to basically better understand what animals find important to themselves and use that as a way of informing, um, of, of creating and designing better living and housing environments for, for animals. So animal welfare isn't really commonly thought of as being a scientific domain. So how does this exactly fit under the science category and why is it important for science? I mean, I, I would say animal welfare is a science like uh, food safety or uh, um, heart health or um, uh, uh, these kinds of applied issues. So yeah, absolutely. We're studying animal welfare because we recognize this as a societal issue. People are concerned about the way animals are kept uh, in animals used in food, in agriculture production, for example, animals used as companions, animals used in laboratories. So that's the driving concern, just like, yeah, food safety or m most medical research. Um, but uh, there's a need to basically, on my side, better understand the animals themselves so as we can create solutions that actually really work well for the animals. So I, I'd also say, actually, much like those other disciplines as well, is that coming up with um, working effectively in applied sciences means that we both we both need to understand the scientific issues, but we also need to understand the societal issues. So in this case, you know, what are the constraints, for example, that farmers have in terms of how they house and care for their animals and then come up with solutions that actually work for them, much like a doctor needs to understand what kinds of medication might work for, let's say, the heart problems their patient has, but also what are the kinds of medications that are actually accessible to the patient? What are the barriers to that patient in, in taking and keeping up with their the whatever treatment um, that they suggest? So according to you, are animal welfare issues linked to the current pandemic? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's all sorts of resonances there. Um, uh, so for example, um, and there's uh, in and 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 we saw that early on in in the in the pandemic. There's um, people working in agricultural industries. People working actually in the slaughter industry were disproportionately affected, uh, and that's because often um, it, it, there's some parts about animal work, not necessarily all, but some parts of animal work which are which are marginalized, which are um, disproportionately attracting uh, a lower paid uh, working group, which is probably also somewhat politically disenfranchised. And so um, that uh, can result in when, when there's a societal, a broad sort of societal issue like a pandemic, then that can probably result in special hardships for those communities. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, that's definitely been, um, been part of the, the narrative. Let's talk about rodents used in lab research. Can we really study lab rodents effectively with non-invasive methods? Oh, what a great question. And that's, of course, another issue which I forgot to mention in your in response to your previous question, Selene, is that the, the, the other, I mean, another big part 
in, in, in this rush towards drug development, of course, there's been lots of animals that are, have been used in research. Uh, yeah, that's one part of our research group's interest is how do we create better lives for laboratory animals? And I actually consider it very similar to, you know, this issue of creating better lives for farm animals is that these are animals which are, which are uh, yet that we're using um, that, but that are, uh, that we have responsibilities to care for well. So I, there's this old idea in terms of our relationship with agricultural animals that some people call this, this ancient contract and this idea that, yes, we can basically use the animal. I mean, this is the point of view that we can use the animals, let's say flesh, if it's an animal reared for, for meat or milk, let's say, but that comes with obligations to us. And part of that obligation is that we provide that animal with as good a life as we can while, while it's under our care, this reciprocity. And, and I think it's the same situation for, for animals that we use in laboratory research is that yes, uh, there's I think a widespread social consensus that sometimes we do need to use animals in research, but that doesn't mean the lives of those animals have to be poor. In fact, there's a lot of work suggesting that the actually, I mean, not only is it arguably our ethical responsibility to take really good care of those animals, but actually the quality of the research is better when those animals have a reasonably good life. And so I, I, I think that there's absolutely, there's some common ground to work on in terms of just because we're gonna use an animal does not in any way, I think, absolve us from the responsibility to provide animals with a very good quality of life. In fact, I would argue quite the opposite. And, and I think that is well accepted in the, in the farming community. And I think that that uh, it also applies equally in, in the laboratory animal environment, that we have this great responsibility to provide as good a life as possible to the animals that are under our care. Much of your research is focused on dairy cows. What mm -hmm. are some improvements that have been made since you began working on this? Another great question, Sonny. Actually, you know, I, I, I come actually from, my, from a basic research background originally. And, and uh, one of the things which I found incredibly attractive about going into applied research was this idea that I could do research that actually would end up making a difference, end up making a difference to, in this case, maybe the people who care for the animals, but also to the animals themselves. And I've been amazed that actually there's been a bunch of things that we've done that really has resulted in changes in, in, in practices on farms. Um, and I'll point to just a couple of them. One is that actually um, uh, there has been, and, and this is applies in all areas of agriculture, but there's uh, a number of sort of routine practices, which would, which would also be painful for animals. And I mean, the ones that might come to mind that people realize straight away is, you know, cattle being branded, let's say, or even if you think about the companion animals that we're aware of, um, you know, dogs would have their tails clipped or their ears clipped or these kinds of things. So these are painful routine procedures that we see. If you just look at, I'm looking at a dog park right now, you can just look outside and see a dog with a crop tail. So that we see around us all the time and that are also common on farms and so on. Dairy farms, for example, most breeds of dairy cattle uh, are born with horns, but for farmers, it's inconvenient and dangerous to the, both the farmers and to the other cows to have these horned animals walking around. So the animals would have um, this, uh, typically have a surgical procedure done early in life where the horn buds are, are, are removed. And that's a, that's a painful procedure. It's an unpleasant procedure for the farmer. And it's a especially unpleasant procedure for the calf because it causes pain. Um, and one of the things which we did early on is research looking at developing much better ways of performing that procedure that, that, that basically pain mitigation protocols. So, you know, combinations of, of, uh, of drug treatments that can really greatly reduce the amount of pain the animals experience. And that's now 
almost 100% change. So um, the the Canada's dairy industry has really been progressive in terms of of now requiring that that basically all dairy farms use those pain control procedures. That's sort of a negative example. Sort of a more well, it, it sort of more positive examples is it, it, again on calves. So is um, again when I started, there was this idea that calves. Um, calves often get sick on farms, and the idea that the part of that calves getting sick was because they were because they were drinking too much milk. That this idea that the, that the milk itself would would make them sick. And so the calves were often fed actually quite low amounts of milk, um, and because of that, or sort of related issue, the cows would often be. Um, housed in little individual stalls. And that's because if you have a really hungry calf, if you put groups of calves together like that, they'll end up, I mean, what does a baby calf do when it's hungry is it sucks on things. And so calves would actually suck on one another and that's a problematic behavior, it could cause even injuries. And so you have these problems with these underfed calves and also individually fed calves. And I'm also really proud that actually I think a largest result of some of the work that our amazing UBC students did here is showed that actually the calves really benefit by feeding them more milk. They grow way faster. It's way better for the farmer. It's way better for the calves. And actually feeding these calves more milk and feeding them in a more naturalistic way, so allowing them to suck milk through a bottle, for example, as opposed to from a bucket, means that the calves are no longer motivated to suck on each other, which makes it actually now easy to keep calves together in, in small groups, which work really well for the calves. And so I think there's been a really amazing transformation in terms of the life of those young calves as a result of, and again, I mean, I, I really would not have dreamt that in my wildest dreams that our research could have really been in the course of just, you know, the short years that I've been working here could have resulted in uh, really improvements. And I think that says a lot about, I mean, the power of research, but also this is something, and, and I think, again, any applied research will get this. The, if we've been successful, it's because we work collaboratively with the dairy farmers themselves. And so that the dairy farmers have been interested in these changes and have been willing to adopt them on their farms. It says a lot about Canada's dairy farmers and their sort of willingness to try, try out different things and listen to research. That leads on to my next question, which is in Canada and maybe globally, um, is the dairy industry moving towards a significantly better standard of animal welfare? So actually Canada's dairy industry has really taken a lot of leadership in there in this aspect. So Canada has this uh, process um, uh, of developing these codes of practice and that's it's led by the industry. So the groups of farmers, I mean, together, I'm, for example, currently serving on a on a on a researcher committee that writes a report for the dairy farmer committee that's writing up the new set of regulations around what, what they do. But this is a basically a set of regulations that are created by dairy farmers and that are enforced by the dairy farmers themselves. So it's quite a, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a sort of a unique made in Canada solution. So this is, these aren't laws that some sort of somebody in Ottawa wrote. This is something that the farmers themselves made, but it's based also on the stakeholder holder participation. So there's lots of participation by researchers, but there's also participation, for example, by the humane movement in terms of how the dairy farmers are, are, are making those, uh, making those sort of rules for themselves. So yeah, those are, those are standards that if you want to produce milk in Canada, you need to, you need to stick to them. And there's a process of constantly updating that. So as I said, that there's a process right now that those are being, up, that those are being updated. That's really great to hear. Do you think that improving animal welfare on farms has been recently more driven by public pressure because I'm thinking of, you know, all the people becoming vegetarian or vegan and being more concerned about how these animals are treated. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the fact that public is interested and cares about where their food comes from is 
of course, hopefully drives practice and should and does drive practice. Um, and it's actually something, I mean, of course, it's hard. You could imagine if whatever, I don't know. I mean, I can let say from my perspective, me as a teacher, if somebody, university teacher, somebody comes in and says, oh, well, you taught that lecture, okay, but I really want you to change this and this and this because it's not that good. I mean, that hurts in the moment, right? To have somebody else telling you how to do your job. And I think there's a there's an issue there in terms of, of course, dairy farmers don't like the idea of somebody else telling them what to do. Um, but if you think about this, and I mean, this again, the way I sort of think about it from me as a perspective of the teacher is that, I mean, I know in order to be a better teacher, I need to go out there and get feedback from other people. And that ultimately I need to be teaching in a way that meets the needs of my students. And I think dairy farmers absolutely are, are aware of that. And there's this, there's there, there needs to be this ongoing conversation collaboration, shall we say, even in the best case scenario between, so that farmers really understand the changing values and interests of, of the citizens and of their customers. Um, but I think it also, it's a two-way street. So I think that also, and I think that actually people are open to this, but it needs to happen too, is that people also understand the sort of realities of farmers. It's, I mean, farming is hard too, right? And they're, they're working within constraints, economic and otherwise. Um, and so I think it is a sort of conversation and collaboration with the people who, who produce food in this country that they understand public values and those changing public values and they work with them, but that we also work to understand the constraints that they're operating on so that we can, we can do this together and that we can sort of make, make our, 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 our societal expectations felt, but also be doing that in a, in a humane, realistic way for, for, for all parties, for the animals, but also for the farmers. Can you tell us any fun facts about cows? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could bore you with cows forever, cow stories forever. Um, well, um, where do I start? Hey, here's something which maybe you wouldn't have expected. One of our graduate students is showing us some videos now of, of she's doing some work with cattle, uh, with our dairy cows and, and outdoor access and providing better ways of allowing those cows to have access to the outdoors. And one of the things that totally surprising um, and was sort of this embarrassing thing that I only found out when we started doing research in this area is if you open the barn doors and we do lots of work like this at our research farm the doors to the barns so the cows go in out when they want we have this what we think is this beautiful indoor barn right uh, state-of-the-art cows should love it cows still of course decide to go outside the interesting thing is I thought as a, this is a, my homo sapien kind of perspective. I thought the cows are going to go outside, you know, in June when it's 24 degrees and the sun's shining, that's when the cows are going to go outside. No. In June when it's 24 degrees and the sun is shining, the cows actually want to come inside because they weigh 800 kilograms and are producing 40 kilograms of milk. So imagine they're, they're like this metabolic furnace. And for them, a really comfortable day is when it's like, 12 degrees, the slight drizzle. <laughs> um, and so what you find is that the cows actually on those summer days, the cows spend most of their time outside at night. So actually at night, almost all our cows would go outside. But then in the day when the sun came out, almost all our cows would come inside. So there's a there's an unexpected, um, but fun fact. The opposite of people in Vancouver, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Just the opposite. <laughs> Mind you, it was a good Vancouverite. We're pretty good about going out even when it's drizzly too, but... <laughs> We just put on our layers of Gore-Tex first. So finally, is there any message you would like to give to our audience? Well, I guess maybe the, the, the sort of a final thing to say is one of the things I find um, 
exciting about this research area is two things is one is the sort of collaborative nature that we're doing this work, but we need to, we need to come up with solutions that work for farmers that work with the citizens that work for the animals. And that's, so it's this complicated space that we're navigating. And that's a weird position for scientists where normally, you know, all we do is we sort of, you know, just look at one perspective and, and being in this applied arena makes you sort of look at this understanding how science works within this broader societal context. The other thing I wanted to say that's fun, particularly about this research area, is if you want to understand animal welfare, it's really about how do you understand what does it mean to provide a good life for an animal? And that's a super complicated scientific issue and philosophical issue, even for people, right? We struggle about these issues all the time. And so how do you do science, for example, even to ask animals about what kind of environments they prefer? Uh, how do we know uh, when animals are experiencing sort of relatively positive emotions versus negative emotions. These are actually scientifically, uh, ethically, of course, very important, but also scientifically very, very difficult and interesting issues. So it's a really, uh, it's, a, it's exciting scientifically as, as well as, um, as practically. So that brings us to the end of the interview. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thank you very much for your interest. A real pleasure to meet you uh, over over Zoom, and and, uh, and and thank you for your great questions. That's it for this week of Sci Section. To all our listeners, make sure to check out our podcast for the latest interviews.